It's my privilege to introduce to you someone who has also heard the call of God and has responded obediently throughout his ministry. In a few moments, you get the privilege of meeting our new teaching pastor, who is Steve Norman. Steve is married to Kelly. Kelly is a NICU nurse in Detroit, and here you see their family, Grace, who's 12, Naomi, who is 10, Josiah, who is 8, and Miriam, who is 6. The incredible thing with that photo that you're looking at is that that photograph was taken last July in Holland. So at the very time that Brad was feeling that call to leave, this photo was being taken. It's as if a marker was being laid down way back then to say, Steve, Central, the call of God is always to send, but don't worry, when a church sends, his people obey and the church receives. About last August, August, September time, uh, Pastor Nate Marielke, who's our worship uh, pastor here, he is uh, leading worship and teaching in a church in Zealand that will be joining us for our worship night tonight here at six o'clock. Nate came to me and said, Craig, I know that you're looking for a teaching pastor and God has laid the name of Steve Norman on my heart. In addition to Nate, there were two other people who spoke to me and, and said, hey, I really believe that Steve is the guy that we should call here. I don't know whether you'll get him, but it would be really cool if you did. But unbeknownst to them, of course, we had actually committed to work with a, a recruiting agency, a search firm. Of course, they don't call themselves that because they're Christians, right? Um, and that firm, quite independently of all of these conversations, that ministry had actually reached out to Steve and said, Steve, uh, how do you feel about coming over here? So four times, four different conversations. And so I really do believe that God has led Steve to us, and that has been affirmed and prepared in, in kind of strange ways, in great ways over the last seven months. Steve currently serves as a teaching pastor of Kensington Church on the east side of the state. Kensington is a multi-site church of eight campuses running 15,000, 16,000 people every week. Steve has served there for nearly two decades. Steve is a graduate of Taylor University. He graduated there with a bachelor's in biblical studies and then went on to study a master's and a doctorate at Fuller in intercultural studies. Steve is passionate about leadership and he is passionate about the Word of God. And I am really excited that God has led Steve to us. Steve is still going to remain with Kensington. We really do believe in a great transition. He will We'll probably make that transition over to us on May the 15th. That's our target date, although there may well be opportunity for you to see him uh, just teach us on a few Sundays before then. If you're going to take a photo and show it on social media, could you do that, please? Therefore, after 12 o'clock, the church family over there are finding out about this. The staff already know, and it's just a large organization, and they just need their time to go through the processes. So we will probably be more public on this tomorrow morning. But Steve, it's my privilege to welcome you, and church family, would you just welcome your new teaching pastor, Steve Norman.
appreciate it. Steve, I'd like to pray for you. And again, they've applauded before you've said a word. No pressure at all. There we go. Let's pray, shall we? Uh, Father, we thank you that when we, your children, commit to follow Jesus, there's no knowing where that road leads. We seek your leading every day afresh. And I just thank you that Steve and Kelly and their family have been willing to do that in this season. And we're excited about the gifts that Steve and Kelly just bring to us. And what we need, Father, really is your anointing. Because all good gifts without the anointing of the Holy Spirit never produce fruit that lasts. And what we want is fruit that lasts. And so, Father, I pray that there would be a supernatural anointing upon Steve as he opens up your word and challenges us and encourages us to know who we are and whose we are. And Father, with this message today, we recognize that our season of of sending is really being supplemented by a season where we receive. And Father, we receive your good gifts to us, and we receive this gift, and we just pray that you would bless him and use him to sharpen us, to challenge us, to encourage us, and to bless us with the blessings that you have given him. Father, we love you, and we rejoice in your leading. In Jesus' name, God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Well, my first visit to the Holland area was when I was 11 years old. I was in sixth grade. My sister Sue was a freshman at Hope. Uh, She invited me for a little Sibs weekend, and it is great to be back. We look forward to calling not only this town, but this congregation home. A few years ago, my son was in kindergarten at our local public, high, uh, public school, elementary school, and his teacher was a member of our church, and she said, Steve, would you be open to coming in for career day? And I was like, yeah, sure, I'd ha- be happy to. Uh, but I didn't exactly know how to explain what it means to be a pastor to a bunch of six-year-olds. If you're a clergy person at career day, you are always going to lose to whoever happens to be the firefighter, because that's like, that is the apex of careers for six-year-old boys. So I, I had brought in some some posters from different work that we do overseas. Our church has a a, a run team. They run marathons to raise money for clean drinking water in northwestern Kenya. So I brought my jersey and I brought some medals. I I brought the medal from the Disney marathon that I ran. And so the children are moving from table to table. And I'll never forget one six-year-old boy comes to my table and he picks up my my Disney Disney marathon medal and he looks at it. He goes, what's this? Well, that's, that's a medal from a marathon that I ran. And without skipping a beat, he just looks at me. He goes, did you win? I was like, well, no, but I, but I finished. It's like, it's a big deal. It was very hard. And he just kind of looked at me again and he went, oh, as if to say with six-year-old condescension, don't waste my time. Like, why don't you come back when you've done something that matters? And have you ever noticed that part of the challenge in life is you could build your whole worth, you can build your identity and all of your significance around one particular accomplishment or achievement that you've done, only to find out to your horror that nobody else cares. And sometimes, there's something, there are other times where you can do, you can be very adept, entirely competent at something. And then you struggle with your competence in that area, and then you're not sure who you are anymore. This happened to me when I was a freshman in college. I had like, my, I came from a very educated family. My father's got his PhD in mechanical engineering and academics and learning and education were very high value for us growing up. So my entire upbringing, like education mattered, grades mattered, achievements mattered. And so I got to my freshman fall semester at Taylor University in central Indiana, and I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to study, and I'm going to keep building on those blocks. 
And I was going to be a ministry student, and I got my very first test in my Old Testament seminar class. And I had not studied nearly as hard as I should have. And when I got that test back, I got a D plus. I was mortified. Because the right answer should have been, I didn't study as hard as I should have. Lesson learned. I'll fix that the next time. Instead, I went into an identity tailspin. I started to say, if I'm not, if I cannot achieve, if I can't produce academically, I don't know if I know who I am. And the problem with that kind of living, that kind of mentality, is that sooner or later, your capacity or your competence is going to hit a wall that you can't clear by yourself. And when that happens, if all of your identity has been put into your accomplishments, your achievement, you'll be stuck with this question, who am I now? Who am I now? And I believe that the most significant question that many of us struggle with, even on a subconscious level, is this question, who am I? And then the follow-up question is this, who gets to tell me who I am? And there's a character in Scripture that I think helps us frame that question well. His name is Gideon. And we're going to look at his story together in Judges chapter 6. So if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures and you'd like one, do us a favor. Or raise your hand. The team, would be more, the team is coming down with copies of the Word that they would love to hand out. We're going to go straight to uh, Judges chapter 6. That's on page 243. If you've got an app and you want to read the Scriptures that way, great. If not, we're going to be reading off of the screen as well. A little backstory: The people of Israel have lost their way. They're not following God the way that they should have. And as God is wont to do throughout the course of Scripture, whenever he needs to redirect his people back home, he will give them a wake-up call through some act of discipline. In this point in Israel's history, discipline has been seven years of oppression, um, the violent attacks from their kind of cross-town rivals, the Midianites. So after seven years of being terrorized by the Midianites, we pick up the story here in Judges chapter 6, verse 11. We read this. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Oprah that belonged to Joash the Abzerite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. So let's stop there for a second. Gideon is, when we first find Gideon, he is threshing wheat in a wine press. Now what's a wine press for? Wine press is for making wine. Like in all the great old black and white movies from like the hill country of Italy, everybody's having a great party when they're crushing the grapes with their bare feet. It's kind of gross when you think about it, but, that, but everybody's having a party, right? That's what a wine press is for. You thresh wheat out in the open. You thresh wheat on a threshing floor. So the fact that Gideon is doing a public agricultural act into the privacy of a low-walled wine press shows how cowardly he truly is. Now, his fears aren't without basis. He's seen the Midianite raiding parties come season after season to steal their crops, to kill and enslave his country people, and rob them of their grain. The Israeli, the Israeli people are on the brink of starvation. So the, the stakes are high for Gideon. And in the midst of this, an angel shows up and says to him this, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, I don't know about you, but if, if I'm Gideon and I'm having a hard time in my life and an angel shows up on my porch with a promise and a revelation from God, the right answer is, thank you. That's not what Gideon says. Let's kind of continue in the text here. Gideon goes, pardon me, my lord, Gideon replied. If we were in a court of law, he would be like, objection, I have concerns right out of the gate. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are his wonders that his, our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. See, I always thought when I read this text that Gideon's first objection would be, 
you got the wrong address. I'm not a mighty warrior. Gideon never gets to the mighty warrior objection. He chokes on the angel's first statement, which is, the Lord is with you. And Gideon goes, oh, really? Prove it. And if you are in a set of circumstances that have been challenging to you, where you're feeling overwhelmed, or you're feeling beat down, or you're feeling downtrodden, and somebody says, hey, buck up, God loves you, and there are, very, there are sunshiny promises for you all throughout Scripture. Anybody ever have somebody try to encourage you in the middle of a dark season? They are well-meaning, but it's hard to take them seriously, because you say, if God is here and God is good, then what gives? That's exactly where Gideon is, and he is at risk of being bound by the chains of both his circumstances and his doubt. Story continues. God says this to him. Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my lord, Gideon replied. But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And I'm the least in my family. God says, Gideon, I got a good thing for you. If you trust me, if you lean into me, we're going to move forward. You're going to experience progress and your nation's going to experience freedom. And Gideon chokes again. He goes, Lord, I don't know if you've been paying attention but you have the wrong person. You picked the wrong country. Right now, the Israelites are not on the kind of the top of the global chain of command. They're at the bottom of the heap. So he's like, you got the wrong country. And he goes, and you've got the wrong tribe. He goes, I'm from the tribe of Manasseh. I don't know how many of you like kind of are Bible trivia buffs and you could like rattle off all 12 tribes. Manasseh was not a leading contender. Like Manasseh was trending on ancient social media. Never. Nobody cared about Manasseh. Like tribe of Judah, they get like a lion and King David. The Benjamites, they get special forces Israelite warriors. It says that they got these 700 left-handed snipers that could hit like a hare with their rocks that they threw. And then the Levites, they wear these priestly garments. They're the heritage of Aaron. They build a bridge between a holy God and imperfect people. Those are good tribes. There are no action figures for Manasseh. Nobody cares. And he goes, and you got, the wrong, you got the wrong clan. The Abzerites, nobody, they're, they're only mentioned four times throughout Scripture. And then only in the story of Gideon. And then finally, Gideon goes, wrong country, wrong tribe, wrong clan, wrong person. If you search like baby name meetings for Gideon and you get down to the ancient Hebrew, you know what it means? It means hewer. I didn't even know what that meant. I had to look it up. A hewer is somebody who cuts wood or stone. Another name is having a stump for a hand. So let's ask two questions here. One, what kind of dreams did Gideon's parents have for his life when they named him? Like, you know what? This kid, he's going to cut up tree stumps. That's what this kid's going to do. Now contrast that with his father's name, which is Joash, which means fire of God. That's like a Hebrew superhero name, right? So like his, in one generation, the country went from being like, we're going to make it, we're champions, to, yep, we're going to be content chopping wood. Like in a single generation. And again, that other part, having a stump for his hand, text doesn't say this for certain, and we can't know. There is a distinct possibility that Gideon may have had a physical limitation, a challenge. If Gideon was in fact born with only one operating hand, of course it would make sense for him to say, Lord, I am not a combat person. Gideon has an entire list of reasons why God should not choose him for the task at hand. Gideon goes, I am a nobody from nowhere with nothing to my name and nobody who is following me. God, maybe you should spin the wheel and try again. 
Gideon is not only bound by his circumstances and his doubts, Gideon is bound by the lies that he keeps believing about himself. And Gideon's not alone, is he? Every single one of us have lies that we believe about ourselves, don't we? That it probably wouldn't take you too much time to write down on a piece of paper the one thought that you harbor in the back of your brain that caters to your deepest fears about your past, your inadequacies, and your insecurities. That somewhere along the course of your journey, whether you're 16 or 69, you can point to a moment where that mean girl in seventh grade, or that overbearing coach from junior high football, or that one boss who never fully appreciated your contributions or your talents, or that that person who was well-meaning as an ex or as a parent or as a family member who has said the wrong thing on the wrong day that you've never been able to forget. I don't know about you, but most of the lies that I believe about myself start with two words. One, one combination of those words are, you're not. You're not talented. You're not attractive. You're not successful. You're not intellectual. You're not. You're not. You're not. There's another version, which is you'll never. You'll never overcome this failure. You'll never beat this addiction. You'll never, you'll never, you'll never. And a very real fear for Gideon was the belief that he was nobody. And that's all he was and all he ever would be. And God went to the very heart of that and said, No, Gideon, today is your liberation day. Today we're going to set you free. From all of the spiritual nonsense that you have internalized and has trapped your mind and your heart and your spirit in a lie. Their conversation, the conversation that Gideon and God have, continues. We pick this up in Judges chapter 6 verse 16. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. You know what I love about the conversation that God has with Gideon? Whenever Gideon has a complaint and wants to bring it back to him... God only ever talks about himself. One of my friends, uh, Steve, he says that his, has a family member who says this. She goes, I might not be much, but I'm all I think about. <laughs> and uh, Gideon is all Gideon thinks about. Gideon does ever stops and says, well, what does God have to say about this situation? Or what is the glory of God? What is the character of God? What is the nature of God? All Gideon is like, me, me, me. And God, I love it. God doesn't cater to Gideon's self-centeredness. He's like, no, Gideon, we're going to talk about me for a second. He goes, I will be with you. I will be with you, and you will strike down all of the Midianites together. God has two promises. He promises his presence, and then he promises his power. And the question that we have to ask is, do we believe that his presence is enough? Because if we don't, my guess is we might not have walked in his presence at all. Or we haven't walked in it very long, because his presence is a game changer. I was telling the last service that sometimes my, my younger children, I'll ask them to go down into our basement to, to fetch something. Like we keep all of our extra paper towel rolls in there. We'll run out in the kitchen. I'm like, hey, can you run down to the basement and get some paper towels? And usually the answer is no. It's not because they're obnoxious or disobedient. I say, well, why don't you want to go down to the basement? It's like, because I'm, I'm scared. And then I'll go down to the basement with them. We'll retrieve the paper towels. We'll come up and there won't, there won't be any incidences. So the, the issue really isn't that they're afraid of the base, basement. The issue is that they're afraid of being in the basement alone. Afraid of being in the basement by themselves. 
And I believe that most of us were afraid because we don't believe that God is walking with us into whatever challenge is around the corner. But if we believe that God knows our name and God believes in the outcomes of our lives and God is with us, then we truly have nothing to fear. About a week and a half ago, I was in Orlando, Florida for a speaking engagement. I was able to bring my son, Josiah, who just turned eight, and I took him to a particular theme park in Orlando, Florida. And while we were getting ready to go on a roller coaster, Joe said, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. He goes, I've never been on a roller coaster that goes upside down. And I know this one goes upside down and I'm not going to do it. And he goes, you're going to make me go. And like he was just getting overwhelmed as we're standing in line for the gates to open. And he goes, you don't make me go. And I go, I won't make you go. I promise I will not make you go. And we get there and I go, I'm going to go because it's my favorite ride. You can wait for me here by yourself and then meet me when we're done. He's like, I'm not doing that. He goes, I know what you're doing. You're making me go. So that was the most poorly, thinly veiled act of parental deception I've ever seen. He's eight. He's not, he's, he's not going to let that one skate. So we get on the ride, and I offer him my hand. He will not hold it. I don't know if he's just bitter or if he was just white-knuckling the harness. But we, we, go through the, we go through the first loop, go through the second loop, go through the corkscrew. It's all in the dark. And it's all over in 71 seconds. And when the coaster slows down to a halt, it's, it's slowing down. It's getting ready to stop. It turns the corner, and he turns to me. When the lights go back on, he goes, is that it? And I go, yeah. He goes, there's not more? And I go, no. He goes, are you lying? No. Especially like our trust bridge was on a, had some gaps in it that day. And it was great because on the other side, he goes, that was not nearly as bad as I had it built up to be in my brain. Have you ever realized that about your fears? That the what-ifs and the hypotheticals and the scenarios create such a dark cloud that you can't even, you can't even see the sunshine of God's brilliance, can you? That the fear is the cloud that chokes it out. And God says, if you believe that I am with you, then we can, we can walk any path, any tunnel. We can navigate any darkness. We can survive any crucible together. Do you believe? Do you believe that I am with you? And do you believe that my presence is enough for you? The story continues. Gideon says this in verse 17. He says, if now I have found favor in your eyes, if you care about me, give me a sign that it's really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. You know what I love about this? I love God's patience for Gideon. It's a good thing I'm not God. I would have been like, Gideon, I done sent you an angel. That should be enough. Get on board. Let's move. But he goes, Gideon, well, how does Gideon frame his prayer? He goes, if I have found favor with you, and what is so important? God needs Gideon to know that he has found favor with him. He needs Gideon to know that he cares for him, that he delights in him. He goes, Gideon, I'll give you whatever it is that you need to get over this hump of doubt in your life. So he gives him a set of instructions. In verse 17, it says, Gideon went inside, prepared a young goat from an epa of flour. He made bread without yeast, putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot. He brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread. Place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. Now, there are many different ways that God could have proven his presence to Gideon in that moment. Why did he choose fire? Because at the beginning of the story, Gideon said, where is the God of my ancestors? How did the God of Gideon's ancestors speak to them? When God first appeared to another leader, Moses, he spoke with fire. 
When God led the Israelites through the desert, he led them with a cloud by day, but at night he led them by fire. So when it was all said and done, God said to Gideon, I don't want there to be any doubt in your mind that it is I who am with you and am speaking to you. He spoke with fire. And so then the story continues. Gideon responds to this encounter that he has with God. When Gideon realized that it was an angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace. Don't be afraid. You're not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. And to this day, it stands in Oprah of the Abzurites. So God said to him, Gideon, peace. Don't be afraid. You're not going to die. At the beginning of the story, he's afraid of the Midianites. In the middle of the story, he's afraid of God. And on both counts, God says, simmer down, Gideon. It's going to be okay. And I love it that when he builds an altar, he doesn't call the altar, the Lord is my fire. He doesn't say, I worship the God who blows stuff up and it's awesome. He doesn't say that. What does he say? He goes, the Lord is my peace. The Lord is my peace. The Lord is my peace. Because there are going to be times in your life where you're going to ask for fire and God isn't going to give you that sign the next time around. Have you ever noticed that some confirmations are for certain seasons of your life and they don't, get, they don't repeat? That God gives us what we need when we need it for reasons that are unique to God? But what does God want to say to us every day? Whether he comes with fire or not, he wants to say, don't be afraid, I am your peace. And so Gideon has this pile of rocks in his front yard, and whenever he leaves, he can walk by that and say, oh, yeah, the Lord is my peace. The Lord is my peace. The Lord is my peace. So Gideon Gideon marks that moment by building an altar. And I'm, I'm so grateful for Matt getting baptized today. Wasn't that amazing? In baptism, what is he doing? He's building an altar. Yeah, you can clap for him. That was amazing. When Matt got baptized, he was marking that moment with a physical ritual. And he's saying, my worship now is in God. Now, when you build an altar that's new to God, sometimes there are altars to other things in your life and in your past that need to come down. And so on the very day that Gideon builds an altar to God, he has to go tear down a family altar to a false god named Baal. And he tears it down in the middle of the night with some buddies. In the morning, the townspeople realize that the, the, the altar to their false god has been demolished. They're filled with rage. They call for Joash to bring out his son. They said, Gideon ruined our altar to a god that doesn't exist. Uh, he needs to die. And Joash has this great moment, and he goes, well, if Baal was such an awesome god, he should have been able to provide security for his own pile of rocks. And so everybody gave Gideon a new name, which was Jerub Baal. This is in Judges 6.32. It says, because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Jerub Baal that day, saying, let Baal contend with him. I love that. So Gideon, at this point in the story, Gideon has three different names. He has his first name, his family name, Cutter of Wood. He has God's name for him, Mighty Warrior. And then he has the town's name for him, which is Jerub Baal, the guy who tore down an altar in the middle of the night. So Gideon has yet to step into the fullness of this mighty warrior expression. So right now it's just a con- it's an abstract concept. God hasn't fully fleshed it out for him yet. So early in the morning, this is Judges chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, Jerob Baal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped out at the spring of Harad. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. And the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands Or Israel would boast against me, saying, my own strength to save me. God says to Gideon, you are a mighty warrior. 
but I never want you to forget where your might comes from. Your might comes from me. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to cut your army down by two-thirds. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remain. So how many, again, Israel has been just getting thumped on by Midian for the last seven years. How many men in that army were terrified? A lot. And so God just weeds them out. And then the story continues. He says, there's still too many men. Take them down to the water. I will thin them out for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water, and there the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs, and all the rest got out on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept 300 who took over the provisions and the trumpets from others. In his brain, Gideon says, you need an amazing leader for a military victory. And I'm not an amazing leader. And then he says, well, maybe God can do with a lesser leader if he's got a big army. And God says, no, we're not going to do that either. And then Gideon says, well, maybe um, if that army is super strong, they can achieve. Well, long story short, God gives them a miracle. The 300 warriors create this very innovative strategy where they do a night raid on the Midian camp. They get so overwhelmed and so confused in the dark of night that the enemies start killing one another in acts of friendly fire. And God delivers the entire nation of Israel out of the hand of the Midianites in one amazing moment. Now you'd like to think that the story would end there. That God would speak to a man who had fear. He would remind him where his identity from. He leans into that identity. He walks with God. They experience victory. And Gideon and the nation go out on a high note. That's how you would like for it to end. But my friend Danny keeps reminding me that the majority of leaders that we read about in Scripture start well, but they don't end well. And what happens to Gideon is the people of the land, in gratitude and tribute, they bring him an absurd amount of money and plunder that they capture from the Midianites. And what Gideon does is he melts all of that down into an afad, which is like a priestly vest. And we read this in Gideon chapter, or sorry, in Judges chapter 8 verse 27. It says, Gideon made the gold into an afad, which he placed in Oprah, his town, and all of Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Why did God want to deliver Israel? To draw them back to himself. And Gideon starts out the story finding his identity in his failures. And he ends the story finding his identity in his successes. And what he loses is where his identity always belonged. And that was in the hands of God. So Gideon, who has had this major moment with God, he's heard face-to-face God's name for him, but he ends his life bowing down to a pile of money. And some of us have had radical life-changing moments with God when we were 16, 25, 39, 52, and then we got to a stage in our lives or our career where we accumulated so much where we accomplished so many things that the stakes were really high and there was a lot more left to lose at the end of our life than there was at the beginning. And without trying, we found our identity in our net worth, in our corner office, or in our resume, not from the lips of the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Gideon's story is a story about identity. And unfortunately, his story ends with the wrong identity, which is Gideon, ephod worshiper.
But when his story starts, he's just Gideon. He's got his family name. Nobody has any expectations for him. Just cutter of trees. And then his story continues. And he's what? He is Jerubbaal, the one who cut stuff down. So all of us, we've got names that we receive from our family of origin. We've got names that we've received from our peers. Our friends know us because we're really good at this, because we did that one crazy thing that one time. But God says, I want you to drill down deeper. I don't want you to get your identity from your family of origin. I don't want you to get your identity from your community of peers. I want you to get your identity from the king of creation. And the king of creation told Gideon he was a mighty warrior. Who does the king of creation say you are? Have you ever had that moment where you say, God, I am done letting the worst version of myself and all of my critics and haters and skeptics or even the well-meaning people who love me, I'm done letting them tell me who I am. Am. I'm done letting my office tell me who I am. I'm done letting my checkbook tell me who I am. I'm done letting Wall Street and Main Street and Madison Avenue and Hollywood, I'm done letting them tell me who I am. Will you please tell me who you say I am? And if there is a prayer that any of us need answered, I believe that at our core it's that one. Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 17 says this. It says, the Lord is with you, the mighty warrior, where did we hear that before? In the story of Gideon. God is the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. He will rejoice over you with singing. What kind of pictures do you have of God? Like I grew up in like awesome, good stained glass churches, right? And there's always like a great picture of Jesus. Like that perfectly starched robe who's teaching on the Sermon of the Mount. It's the other one where he's like very gently holding the lamb. And there are others where he's suffering on the cross. Then we've got pictures of God the Father who sits on a very regal throne with this just glowing robe and this very august beard. You, got, you have those images? How many of you, as one of your images, when you roll through your brain searching for your images of God inventory, how many of you have a picture of God with a guitar singing a love song? My guess is that that one did not immediately register on your brain. It doesn't register for mine. But Zephaniah 3.17 says that that is an entirely theologically sound picture of God. One that rejoices over you with singing. Now, I'm not a good vocalist, and I was never a good songwriter. In fact, I had a crush on a girl in high school, but it took me like five years to finish the song. So it got like, it just like went through like four different relationships, you know? I just kept moving it on to the next person. Just a sappy is all get out. Because like when you're in love and you can't contain it, like you just, you're like, oh, I, I got to write a song about this. Like there's no greater declaration of love than an original tune that is ascribed to one person. But most of us don't think that God thinks that way about us. When Kelly and I had our oldest child, Grace, when she was 12, uh, she, that was 12 years ago, our other friends, we were kind of like the first in our friend group to be parents, would come to us and they would say, we never see you guys anymore. What do you, what do, you do on Friday nights these days? And I'm like, okay, check this out. We take our baby girl and we rock her to sleep and then we put her in her crib and then we stand at the railing and we watch her breathe. And the little tiny chest goes up and down and up and down. My friends who didn't have kids are like, y'all have done lost your minds. Does not sound like fun at all. But how many of you who are parents know that you could do that for hours? 
Because there is nothing quite as magical as watching this person who has done absolutely zero to warrant your favor and love simply breathe. Have you stopped to consider that God does that for you? That on the end of your worst days, God might actually wait until after you're sleeping and then just kind of roll back the ceiling on your bedroom and call some angels over and say, look at this one. Look at this one right here. Uh, he, he's in a rough spot. Like the, the debt is accumulating and the marriage feels wobbly and he doesn't really know how to do the dad thing the way that he wants to. But guess what? I love him anyway. And I have a name for him. And I delight in him. Let's all sing the song that I wrote for him now. Or do you see, do you see this one over here? She does not feel like she's connecting with other girls at school. She feels overwhelmed by her capacities. And she feels... She feels less than attractive, but I call her beautiful. She is my beloved daughter. Let, come on, come on. Let's fire up that one track that we wrote just for her. Because that's what God does for you. On the days that you're winning and on the days that you're not. And on the days that you trust him and the days that you don't. God rejoices over you and delights in you. And I believe that if we could kind of hit pause on our life and capture that snapshot as real, I think we would make different choices than the ones that we do when we don't believe that anybody's watching and we don't believe that we matter. Because if when I roll out of bed believing that I'm nothing, I can do whatever I want because my choices don't matter. But if my feet hit the floor and I believe that I am a treasured Son of the Most High King, do you think I make different choices on that day? You better believe it. A few months ago, I was tucking my children into bed. They all had their own beds, but for whatever reason, the younger three always end up in Josiah's bed. I'm not just party central in his room. And all of them have kind of nicknames because, like, we believe that names speak to destiny in the scriptures. And so, uh, we named our nickname for Grace when I would tuck her into bed and pray for us. Grace, you are our precious gift. You're God's gift to us and to the world. Don't you ever forget it. And then we tuck her in and we pray for her. And then in the scriptures we have the story of Ruth, right? Ruth, who's Naomi's mother-in-law. And Naomi built a bridge to take Ruth, who is an outsider, ethnically and culturally and spiritually. And she brought her into her family, right? And so we go, Naomi, your, your destiny, part of God's call in your life is that you would be a brave friend, and Josiah, scriptures describe you as a strong king. And Miriam, the woman in scriptures who had your name, she and her brothers led an entire nation out of slavery. And when they got to the other side of the Red Sea, she was the worship leader. She sang a song of deliverance. So you, your name, Miriam, you are our freedom song. And so I tucked them all into bed, prayed those prayers over them, and I turn off the light. And as I turn and walk away towards the door, I take two steps away from the bed, and Josiah goes, hey, Dad. I go, yeah, buddy. He goes, I have a question for you. And I go, sure. He said this, who gets to tell you who you are? Who tells you who you are? Who reminds you of what your name is? And I froze mid-stride and I go, buddy, I don't know. But I do now. 
And the question that you have to answer and the question that I have to answer, not just at one point in my life, not at turning points in our lives, not altar building moments or baptism moments, but everyday moments, the question that we all have to answer is this. Who gets to tell you who you are? Who have you given identity declaring permission to? Boyfriends, girlfriends, professors, coaches, bosses, total strangers, faceless masses on Instagram. Who gets to tell you who you are? Because if you have given that card to anyone other than the one who knit you together in your mother's womb, the one who offers to redeem and transform you, if you've given that card to anybody other than God, you will be disappointed. You will be overwhelmed confused and heartbroken and i'm not saying that if you give that card to god that everything is perfect but when god gets that card when god gets that card life isn't easy but life is clear proverbs says the integrity of the upright will guide them when you know who you are you know what to do when you know who you are you know what to do and I want to hear Jesus reminding me, Steve, you belong to me. You are my beloved. You're not perfect. But even in your rebellion, even in your darkness, even when you were bound by your hurts and your hang habits and your hangups, I redeemed you. I snatched you out of the fire because I love you and I call you my own. I know your name. I see your circumstances. I'm with you. And because I'm with you, I get to be your peace. Are you ready for the next step? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. So my prayer for you is that you would hear from the very lips of Christ himself who he says you are. And then together, we as a family, we as a central community could be constantly reminding each other of who God says that we are. So that we don't lose our way believing that we are anything less than or anything other than who Jesus says we are. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you that your love for us is real. I thank you that it's rich and wide and deep. I thank you that you went to a cross and suffered for crimes that you did not commit so that we could be forgiven from ours. Lord, I pray that you would break chains of deceit and chains of fear and chains of self-absorption and self-promotion and self-defensiveness and just self-period. You would break us free from all of our obsessing about us so that we can finally see you. And that when we see you, we can see ourselves the way that you do. And that in that, there would be life and freedom and joy. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. God bless. Amen. And that truly is just uh, the beginning. Steve, thank you have for that. And uh, thank you for speaking words of hope and life uh, to us. Before we uh, dismiss in a word of prayer, we've got a, a great week. We've got a big week. Uh, this week starts this evening, 6 p.m. Here we have our worship night. We'll be joined with uh, by uh, folks out of our Grand Rapids campus. Jordan will be here, also a church over in Zealand. Uh, we'll also be joining us when Nate is, uh, plus our central team here, 6 o'clock tonight. You won't want to miss that, so please re, uh, remember that. This week, this Wednesday, is um, the Lenten journey begins, so this week 
beginning at 7 a.m. in the worship, uh, in, in here in our worship uh, center and 6.30 next Wednesday evening. We have our Lenten service. Pastor Mike will be leading us through that. That's this Wednesday as we journey towards Easter. And, and you know, we have uh, like Advent Sundays and we're used to that, but the journey towards Easter is something that we overlook. And we're just going to take some time on Wednesday morning to still ourselves, to celebrate communion together as a faith family, and to just begin that journey towards Easter. Our journey towards Easter as a uh, community also continues on Friday. If you had your program guide in there, this Friday morning at 11 is coming Friday, March the 3rd, is uh, the launch, the grand opening of our Kids Playland. Kids have been waiting for this for weeks and weeks, and that is going to be this coming Friday at 11. So please pray for Ethan and Travis and the team as they go through that. And then next Sunday, we launch our Lenten series. Remember, the short circles is sign up for those, a five-week series entitled Impoverished. I'm really excited about this series. We believe that the world is messed up, God has a plan, and you are, we are a part of the solution. And we really do believe that a number of us need to go deeper with the messages in this series, and that's where the short circles really do come into play. So please do consider signing up for a short circle. Okay, that's this week. Tonight at 6, Wednesday, 7 o'clock and 6.30, and then Friday at 11, and next Sunday, 9 and 10.45. we got a lot going on, right? So let's just uh, go out and live like Jesus. Stand with me as uh, we pray together. Remember who you are. You are a child of God. You have been bought with a price. You have been cleansed through the blood of Christ and transformed through the Holy Spirit. So go in grace, go in peace, and may the God of all comfort go with you. See you all next week. Have a great week, and God bless you.